It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. On this Giving Tuesday, and in line with our past tradition, we are highlighting the story of a company that is doing their part to make the world a better place. They do this by giving back to their local communities and creating a more sustainable environment. Today's guest is the CEO of a company based in Birmingham, Alabama, that's donated $35 million over the last 10 years to organizations like Make-A-Wish, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and Adult and Teen Challenge and they also keep almost 50 million pounds out of landfills every year. I am so privileged to share his story with you. Today, my guest is Ken Sabasky, CEO of America's Thrift Stores. ATS is America's premier thrift retailer in the Southeast, with 24 stores on track to deliver over 80 million in revenue and plans to double in size over the next three to four years. Ken has been the president and CEO of ATS since 2013 when he stepped off the board to assume this role. He spent his first four years building the team, putting in scalable systems and processes, improving operations, and cleaning up the balance sheet, all to prepare for accelerating growth. Prior to joining ATS, Ken has been a visionary, strategic president and CEO with a history of significantly accelerating growth and inspiring teamwork on businesses across multiple different industries. He has over 30 years of experience at blue-chip marketing-driven companies like Kraft, General Mills, Pillsbury, Polaris, and Capella Education. Ken holds a BA in Economics and Urban Studies from St. Olaf College and an MBA in Marketing and Strategy from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. Ken Sobaski, welcome into the corner office. Hi, Brent. Thank you. Uh, it's great to have you here, and we've had a couple of discussions over the last few weeks and gotten to know each other, but uh, we always like to kind of start in the, in the beginning and understand a little bit about your early family life. Tell us about where you grew up, you know, mom and dad and brothers and sisters. Well, I uh, grew up in a place called South St. Paul, Minnesota, which is mm. a suburb of uh, in the Twin Cities, uh, as the, the name indicates, directly right. south of St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, I am one of six children. Uh, my uh, I am not the oldest, though, because I have a twin sister, and she is 20 minutes older than I ah, am. Ah, okay. Uh, and, but and you're, I, the, you're the two I, at the top of the food chain. <laughs> the two at the top of the food chain. Um, my dad, I, I grew up in a relatively poor household. Hmm. Um, my dad worked as a steam fitter uh, at Swift & Company uh, when they had a major packing plant in South St. Paul. South St. Paul hmm. used to be the home of the world's largest stockyards before stockyards started getting spread out throughout the countryside mm. and uh, my dad worked there as a steam fitter as as did you know my grandpa and a couple wow. of my uncles and a whole bunch of people it was the major employer and yeah. uh, uh, my mother really never worked until uh, all of our all of us were grown um, yeah. and then she started working I mean she was in her 40s when she started working and wow. she didn't stop working until about uh, five six years ago she's mm. about to be 89 so she was well into Good her 80s her. when she stopped working are you all pretty close uh, the siblings in age uh, um three years apart we, we yeah we have uh the youngest is um 
five years younger than the next youngest, and then the rest of us are all about a year apart. Uh, my yeah. mom and dad epitomized family planning. All but one of their children were born in, born in January. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And uh, uh, were you the first in the family to achieve a degree, or did you and your, your twin well, sister... Um, it, it, the the first in in my direct family, I had yeah. uh, uh, two aunts uh, and uncles that had college degrees, uh, but in terms of my grandparents' grandkids, I was literally the first one to go to yeah. college, yeah. Um, and I was the first one to go to college in in my own family. Yes, my my old my twin sister didn't go until uh, later in life. Right, right. Was that something your parents had uh, kind of inspired you to do? Did they want you to kind of get a leg up from their blue-collar background, or was it more self-motivated? Um, it was a combination of my yeah. mom and and a, a gentleman who you'll hear me refer to as Mike the Butcher. Um, right. <laughs> my, I, uh, I've heard about Mike already. <laughs> I know you have. Uh, but between uh, my... my I, when I grew up, my father was a, was an alcoholic, uh, and uh, uh, what that meant is there were a bunch of times in our lives when uh, he was checked out, you know, yeah. drunk somewhere else. Um, the good news is is that when he passed away four years ago, uh, he was well into his thirtieth year of sobriety, oh, um, and so he he you know. Uh, got rid of that nasty habit for the yeah. last uh, chapter of his life, which was a good thing. But so my mom very much was the matriarch of our family, yeah. uh, and the one who you know was Kept pushing. Um, yeah. And and when I started working at the butcher shop, you know Mike was the same way. Um, yeah. And so yeah. I, you know, between the two of them, there were you know, uh, it was it, I, there was never any doubt by the time I was a you know sophomore in high school that I was going to go to college. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so tell us about Mike. How'd you meet him, and uh, how did you get that first job? <laughs> well, I was uh, laying in a hammock in the backyard uh, reading books. I was a voracious book reader mm. back then, still am. Um, I uh, used to ride my bike to the bookmobile, if you remember bookmobiles. Mm. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. and, and loaded oh, up. Oh, it's when, they, when areas didn't have a library, right? Exactly, Bookmobiles yeah. kind of came yeah. in and they made that accessible. In, so, exactly. Yeah, right. um, mm -hmm. And so I was, it was the middle of summer. I was 13 years old. Um, I was laying in the backyard and Mike sauntered across the street because the butcher shop was literally right across the street. It was a kind of a storefront retail butcher shop. Right. And Mike, Mike, leaned on the fence and said you don't look like you're very busy would you like to make some money and i said well, <laughs> and, and I said, well what, what doing what and he, said, well, come, and he said well come by the store tonight at 5 30 and i'll show you and so at 5 30 i went over there and he wanted me to clean the butcher shop um the gentleman who had been cleaning uh had retired and and mm. and completely retired uh, and so uh, Mike showed me how to clean the butcher shop, and uh, the rest they say is history, history because yeah. I, I literally worked for Mike uh, all the way through high school, all the way wow. through college, uh, and I even worked Saturdays after I had my MBA and was at was back at General Mills. I'd mm. go in on I'd go in on Saturday mornings and help. Uh, at the butcher shop and come home with a bag full of uh, steaks or things. Uh, so it, it was, uh, uh, I, and I, and I, you know, sensibly went through a journeyman meat cutter kind of program. Yeah. I mean, I learned yeah. how to cut meat. I learned how to help run the business. And mm. I just, I learned one hell of a lot of stuff. From yeah, that. yeah. Well, give us a couple of the key, uh, you know, lessons. If you think back to particularly those early days, I mean, I love the fact because at five thirty, showing up at five thirty, you probably didn't see that one coming, right? That it was going to be a cleanup job to start. <laughs> I, just, I, just, well, I had no idea. I mean, I'd been in the front of the butcher shop. I never really right. been in the back of the butcher shop, and and I, it is it, as messy as you can imagine. The back of a butcher shop is after a day of cutting meat. 
it's worse. I mean, it's, it's, but but you also have you also have great cleaning equipment with steam guns and stuff like sure. that too. So um, so it was. Well, he was thing. really testing your metal, right? Though, because yeah. honestly, you start with a job like that, and if you come back the next day, you probably have some prospects. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> well, and I I actually back then even negotiated. I you know living we lived in a small house with six kids, right? Wow. And so, yeah. uh, and school was was important to me. And one of the things I said to Mike is, hey, can can I do my homework here after I clean the place? Because it was quiet. So I could turn on the radio and just sit at his desk and do my homework. And he said, That's sure, right. just make sure you lock the place up when you leave. And so I had right. a place... I had, place a a, place I, I, yeah, I had a place yeah. to get away too. I mean, yeah, so sure. it was, it was sure. fun. So back to your question about lessons. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I got to write a book someday about, like, <laughs> I mean, um, you got the title already. It's got to well, be called Mike the butcher. Right? Well, it is. But then, but then I also have to include some lessons from my mom's mom or mm. my matriarchal grandmother who's yeah. na- who we, who went by nanny. That wasn't her name. Her name is Violet, but she went by nanny. Yeah, I mean, because it's like I, I have this book, Lessons from Nanny and Mike the Butcher. I mean, <laughs> there I mean, you go. So, I love it. Um, two, two things from Mike that I still actually tell people about. Um, one was about uh, customer service. Um, mm. uh, our business, a key foundation of our business was selling uh, portion cut, individually wrapped, flash frozen steaks of various kinds. Uh, right. basically boxes of a dozen and our during the summer from about five o'clock Thursday until we closed at, at one o'clock on Saturday that was our busiest period of time because in Minnesota sure. people go outside and they grill and, and they do all that stuff so people were buying our steaks and it was one Saturday morning um, and a woman we were loaded to the to the gills probably 20 30 people in our small front end of our mm. of our butcher shop um a woman comes in with with a box of steaks the the box was red they're typically white the steaks had thawed and oozed out oh. and she walked in and and she 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 mike said to those of us waiting the front end let me take this one and she said look what somebody sold me i want to return it and it's like, uh, well, that wouldn't have happened. Our quality control was actually better than that. What probably happened is she left it in her trunk or yeah, left it in her yeah. car. And, and you know, and, and Mike said, oh, I am so sorry that that happened mm. here. Let me get you a brand new box and let me give you a coupon for another box um, after you finish this one. And later that afternoon, after, you know, we're, we're closing up, I said, why in the hell did you do that? <laughs> and, and, and he's like, he said, I, the way I figure it, it cost me two boxes of steaks. 20 people saw it. Yeah. yeah. By this time today, she's told her mom, she's told right, her sister, she's right. told her friends, and those 19 other people in the front of the store saw me do that, too. and they told yep. other people, I just got more free advertising than I'm ever going to pay for. It's going to never cost a box of steaks. That's right. Oh my! So that was that was that was just kind of one of the lessons that Mike had. Another one had to do with how he treated people. Mm. Um, He was fair but firm, Um, Mm. and and he, my my brothers and my best friends all had opportunities to work there. all but one of them also got fired. Oh. <laughs> I mean, and so and 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 it was because because of accountability issues, because yeah. of not showing up on time, because of mm-hmm. not calling to let you know you're not showing up on time, but because of screwing around, you know, in the break room and things like that. And and Mike right. was, you know, he held people accountable. And yeah, if you if yeah. if you performed and did your job you know, you got rewarded for it. You got raises, right. you got bonuses, you got all those kind of things. And so, yeah. um, the, the, I guess the other thing I learned was kind of in innovation and ingenuity. Mike made a, a product that he called a no name steak, which mm. is just, it's, it literally is, it's a piece of, of sirloin flat meat, which is a part of the sirloin right. that he butterflied into a steak and then tenderized with a protein enzyme um, and 
he just sold the hell out of it so much so that um, <laughs> somebody wanted to buy the name and wow. you know Mike um, lived on on the St. Croix River which is a, a nice waterway near the Twin Cities um, and he had right. a nice decent sized boat that when No Name Stakes first talk, took out he called his boat No Name One when a, a larger regional meat distributor uh, decided to license the name from Mike and, and buy it out, Mike bought a 50-foot large boat that, that he called the No Name 2, and he retired. And he, and he retired to Naples, Florida, and, and, and St. Croix Beach, you know, uh, Minnesota, and, and spent the summers in Minnesota and yep, the winters yep. in Naples, and went back and forth, and it was all because of this product that he invented. Um, and, and yeah, there were a whole bunch of other things like that I learned from, from Mike. Um, Mike is no longer with us. He, he Mm. passed away, gosh, it's four years ago, five years ago now. Mm. Um, but, but, um, you know, I, I, it was, and, and he was the first mentor that I ever had. I mean, and, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have gone to college. I probably wouldn't have gone to Mm. business school, um. I wouldn't have learned a whole bunch of lessons that I apply even today after having, you know, an MBA from one of the great business schools in the United States. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. I, I, I learned as much from Mike as I did from the Kellogg School. Great story. I love it. So, so you went off to college, St. Olaf, I think, college, right? Was uh, where you got Saint your Olaf, undergrad. Yep, yep. What, how did you decide where to go and what to study? Um... Well, I was, I wanted to go away, but not so far away. Mm, uh, I right. had a, a, a steady girlfriend who actually became my, my first wife. Um, uh-huh. And St. Olaf was just far enough away. Uh, I grew up in a household that was Lutheran. And, and actually, when I graduated from high school, I, I was um, the class salutatorian. And, and so I got interviewed for the local newspaper. And they said, well, right. what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to go to St. Olaf College. I'm going to study religion and philosophy, and I'm going to become a minister. Uh, my mom mm-hmm. has my picture and article from that, that local newspaper. I think it was called the Sun News, framed and still hanging on the wall. With the quote. With the quote and saying, what the hell happened to you? I mean, <laughs> you were going to be a minister. I mean, well, it's like, and, I, and I was. That literally was my intention. I... I my, when I enrolled at St. Olaf College, and St. Olaf was a Lutheran school, Norwegian in heritage. Um, yeah. What struck me literally in my first year with the the people who lived on my dorm floor that um, were planning on being ministers is, is they had a calling, and they felt a calling, yeah. and, they, they, and right. I didn't have that. And, and it was clear to me not having that, that it'd be disingenuous and insincere mm. to think that I mm. should pursue the ministry. So I stopped doing that and, and proceeded over the next two years to jump between majors. I think I went first from religion to sociology to psychology to urban studies to ultimately economics. And uh, I graduated with degrees in math and economics and, mm. and uh, um you know, one of the questions you, you pose ahead of time is, what did you do besides your major? Well, when you decide at the end of your sophomore year that you're going to <laughs> be an economic, math and economics major, and you've had, you know, a total of one economics class and two math classes, <laughs> you know, you basically are doing nothing else for the next two years. Right. I mean, and, right. and so that, that was my education. Other than going back to Mike's and helping out from time well, to time. Going back to Mike's right? every uh, Saturdays. Well, cause, and and I, St. Uh, Olaf was about an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes from the Twin right, Cities. Right. I, my, yeah. my girlfriend, you know, uh, was going to be there. I also, I got married in college. I mean, I was, mm. uh, uh, and I had my first child. And, and so college for Busy me yeah. was was it was a job i mean i don't don't know how else to say it i mean it was because i was i was living you know back in south st paul um my wife and i were uh, were both working me at the butcher shops evenings and weekends you know her at at her own job you know starting a family and well finishing my degree 
Now you went on directly to get your MBA right after, if I'm not mistaken. What well, you know, most people—not most, but some—do go on and work for a while before they came back. Did you feel you just needed to have that extra business education uh, prior to um, going out of the workforce? Well, to, I guess two or three things I'd, I'd mention there is, is one: um, I was a good student, so I actually had my choice of, of business schools to go to. I mean, yeah. I was accepted into. You know, Wharton, uh, Tuck, uh, Dartmouth, Tuck, uh, right. University of Chicago, Northwestern. The only two two schools I wasn't accepted into was Harvard and Stanford, and both would have accepted me on delayed admission if I'd worked. Right. Um, but the other schools wouldn't. Uh, for us, not ever having really been anywhere. I mean, I literally hadn't been much of anywhere. Uh, other than Minnesota in my whole life. Um, I I didn't want to go too far away, so it ended up being decided between Northwestern and the University of Chicago. Chicago, Um, And um, the reason I went right away was twofold. One, I started working at 13. I didn't need to go work for a couple of years to be ready for business school because I started learning business, you know, at the, at the, feet of Mike the Butcher. Um, yeah. I didn't feel like I need to do that. Secondly, <laughs> my, my my son was, you know, three going on four. And if I didn't go to school right away, I was pretty yeah. sure I wasn't going to be because I would have continued yeah. to, to, to expand my family. And so right, it made sense. One, one of the things that happened in my um, senior year of of uh, St. Olaf is one of my jobs was actually to work for the local hospital uh, president, helping him do a strategic plan. Um, oh, I had, yeah. and, and, and the, for my economics degree at St. Olaf, you actually had to do a thesis and you, do, and you had to do a research thesis. So you, you actually had to, to, to do research. And so my thesis was entitled the economic aspects of HMOs as an alternative healthcare delivery system. And I worked with a think tank in the Twin Cities, which besides the San Francisco area, was one of the areas where HMOs first had their start. Understanding cost dimensions and things like that. I I used to wander around campus with these (laughs) you know, with punch cards that I'd run because I did, I created a model and I modeled what the impact would be on cost and stuff. But I was interested in healthcare and I was going to go to to Northwestern because it had a joint healthcare management program, MBA program. But in my, literally in my fall of my senior year at St. Olaf, there was a marketing class as part of the, as a, as an elective class as part of the economics program. And a gentleman who taught it had an MBA in marketing and had his own marketing consulting firm. Mm. And I just got hooked in marketing. And so between Northwestern being one of the premier marketing schools in the United States and having this joint healthcare program, you know, it became the right place for me to go along with the reasons of, of why you went right away. And you got your MBA and then spent about 15 years, a little bit more than that, in, in the CPG world. Great companies. Uh, uh, worked for Pillsbury, Kraft Mondelez. I think you got your start with General Mills. It, it, tell me yep. a little bit about the choice of going into that uh, aspect of business once getting out of school. Well, um, I love marketing. I consider myself to be a marketer yeah. still to this day. I love the idea of you know, who's the customer, who's the competition, how do you differentiate yourself, what are the needs right. that the customer has, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the companies like that, the General Millses, the Crafts, the Procter & Gamble's of the world, yep. you know, brand management, product management was an important part of, of, you know, what you did as a marketing person. And what that meant is very early on, you had P&L responsibility and P&L yeah. responsibility for a brand, so to speak. And so to me, going into CPG companies in brand management, product management was a way to get to running a P&L and running a business quickly. Right. And, and that was always my intent 
uh, once I decided not to be in healthcare. So yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, and and I'm sure you had some supervis- supervisor responsibility at Mike's, but um, was the CPG world where you first started managing people, and if so, was that the early days at General Mills, or when, when did you? Yeah, first, it, uh, um, it it wouldn't have been until it, the way General Mills worked your first year someone managed you your second year you may have had one person two that you managed uh it was it was your third or fourth year where you were given responsibility for a a brand a a brand and and had a a team of people uh at that by the time you were a brand manager you also had dotted line and direct line responsibility because you had a team of R&D people and a team yeah, of manufacturing sales, and operations finance, people, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, so yeah. you had a you had a, a decent cross-functional team, albeit dotted line and direct line combinations. What were some of those early lessons when you first started working and managing people directly, Ken? Um, well, I don't know if I I don't know if I I I did well managing people early on. I <clears throat> I, I think I was a slow. Uh, learner, um, I think that teaching was probably the one thing, and listening were probably the mm. the things that that I learned. I, I had uh, a great boss, a gentleman named Peter Spokes, was my my first boss on Wheaties. Um, that was my first job at General Mills, as I, I was the marketing assistant on Wheaties, and yeah. Peter was our was our product manager, um, and he epitomized le- listening and and I, and it, it harkened me back to you know I talked about the lessons of nanny um, right. nanny 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 you know you know one of Covey's seven habits is seek first to understand and then yeah. be understood yeah. well right. n- nanny had that before Stephen Covey wrote it I mean she used to say <laughs> you've got you've got two ears two eyes yeah. two nostrils <laughs> one, mouth. one mouth use them proportionately I mean, and it's like, right. huh? Yeah, and it's like, and and she's right. I mean, and and she's she was exceptionally right for new experiences, new jobs, new teams. That the last thing you want to do is walk in and act like you know it all. You want to walk in and right. you want to, and and those were the lessons that I saw in action with Peter. I mean, he was so good at that, and and so between your nanny telling you that and your first boss living it that was probably one of the more powerful lessons that i had yeah. you know early yeah. on awesome awesome and if you look back at some of the foundational uh experiences you've had at cpg obviously a lot of time in marketing a lot of time managing people and developing it but if you went back and said okay so it's been you know 15 years or so since you've worked you know really on brand right working in those individual markets what were some of the foundations that you built back then that you use today best best Two two things. One, uh, one one of my most successful experiences was running the refrigerated baked goods business for Pillsbury. Um, mm. It think of it as the the dough products that are sold in the dairy case. So, you know, grand cinnamon rolls, biscuits, cookies, etc. All that stuff right there that's Pillsbury right. branded. It's it it is the doughboy. Um, the person who was running the overarching Pillsbury brand left Pillsbury, and he had had all of the Pillsbury branded products underneath him. Mm. My boss, who was the president of, of Pillsbury Grocery Products, which was not just the Pillsbury branded products, but Green Giant and a bunch of others, um, came to me and said, Ken, I was running Green Giant at the time, so I'd like you to run the Pillsbury refrigerated uh, uh, dough products. And I was like, "What?" I said, what, "Not all of Pillsbury." I mean, I said the person who left had all of Pillsbury, <laughs> and and he said, "No." He said, "Because I really think that we need to fix this business. It's hmm. it's our most profitable business, and it hasn't grown by a nickel for six years." Um, wow. And I I think by having focus it and figuring it out, we can grow it. And I said, "Well." okay, but can I have my own team? And he said, yes, you actually get to pick whoever you want in the company to work on your team because this challenge is so important to not just Pillsbury, mm. but to Diageo or Grand Met who owned us. And so I literally, I, I learned 
two things very quickly, right? And there'll be a third. One was the power of focus. You know, the, the other was the power of team. I mean, by, by being able to pick my vice president of marketing, my vice president of R&D, my vice president of operations. I mean, I had, I had the best team in the company. And, but, yeah, we, and, yeah. and, and so focus team. Then the third thing that we did is we, we, we did what I call turn the business on its side. Hmm. My predecessors all used to think about market share as what's the market share inside the refrigerated case. And so hmm. since no, nobody else sells cookies inside the refrigerated case or they didn't back there, your share was 90. Since nobody else sold cinnamon rolls other than the, the private label you know, generic items, your share was like 75, 80. And I said, no, no, that's not, that's not our market share. Our market share is the world of baked goods. And we actually yeah, changed the, the name of the division. Yeah. We said, instead of being refrigerated dough products, we're going to be refrigerated baked goods. And we started doing mm. our market shares versus other things. And so when you're in the baked good business and you do cinnamon rolls, you know who has the highest share in cinnamon rolls? No idea. Cinnamon. <laughs> Makes sense. Right. Cinnamon. You know who has the highest share in cookies? Mrs. Fields, Pro Nabisco, yeah. Oreo, right, etc. stuff. And right. so yeah. when you turn the business on its side and you looked at a broader paradigm and you looked at all the things going on and, and identified who were the, the leaders in your field and what were they doing that you weren't doing? Well, my goodness, you know, Mrs. Fields was doing gooey, chewy, chunky cookies, you know, et, et cetera, et cetera. And we basically took all of those ideas by changing the aperture on our lens and said, we're not doing these things, let's figure out how to do them. Yeah, um, and yeah. you know, we, we literally within uh, two and a half years took a business that was 600 million in sales and made it over a billion in sales um, and doubled its profitability. I mean, and, yeah, and, we, and yes. to do that, we had all these new product ideas. We went to the board of directors in St. James Square and said, we need you to let us hold our profit flat for the next year and a half so that we can invest in these new products. But if you do, we right. think we can do this. And they they did and we did and, and as they say the, the rest is history. The rest is history. So, yeah. so three three lessons, focus, team, turn the business on its side and change the paradigm and, and redefine what market you're yeah, awesome. Well, we want to talk a little bit about your current CE role as uh, America's Thrift Stores. But before we do so, we want to, I want to kind of talk a little bit about your pivot into education and learning. Uh, I think you went to Polaris first. No, sorry, Capella Education. And then, and then obviously worked with Trident Learning. And I think that's where you first had your CEO. Tell, tell us a little bit about that pivot and, and, you know, from a kind of sector standpoint, what attracted you to go into learning? The... Um I was at Polaris. I was I was chief customer officer, uh, but I was also a part of a horse race to be president and COO of the of the company. Um, mm. And went and there were three of us. And, and our boss, my boss, was was the one of the best bosses I had. But he was also very direct. He, the three of us, all knew we were part of this horse race. The the three of us were sat in a room with him, and he also said. One of you is going to be the president, chief operating officer someday, and and you know I'm not going to say out loud to the, all three of you what it is that each of you are working on and what I'm looking for, but just know that someday in the next two, three, four years I'm going to pick one of you. I mean, and and he did, and it wasn't me, uh, and he restructured our jobs around, and so I was, you know, kind of sitting on the sidelines needing to find a job. Um, to his credit, uh, the chairman and CEO of Capella Education Company, also the founder, had used to be a board member at mm. Polaris. And when he he created a president and chief operating officer role at, at Capella, and he reached out to my boss at Polaris and said, hey, created this new know? role. <laughs> Anybody you know that I should consider? Yeah. I'm looking for somebody who can do this, this, and this. And for t for me, this, this, and this was all marketing customer kind of things, which for my, for the guys at Polaris weren't as important as being a gearhead and an opera and an engineer and 
and into the product. But for for the chairman at Capella, it was exactly what he was looking for because he knew his business yeah. was getting so big that it needed to be better segmented. The brand needed to be enhanced, et cetera, et cetera. And so, right, right. I ended up I ended up becoming president and chief operating officer yeah. of Capella Education Company. It awesome. was a great. It was it was serendipitous if, if ever there was, but it was I was there to see obnoxious growth. I mean, we went from. 170 million to 500 million in the time I was there. You know, we were wow. adding 350 jobs a, a year, um, and I also got to be part of a team that took a company public. So it was wow. it was a great learning great experience. Time. Yeah. Um, and and uh, I loved uh, the world of education because of what I was learning. I, I I have to say I didn't necessarily love the world of academia. Uh, because academicians are not customer oriented. Right, <laughs> Most right. professors don't see their students as customers, and so um, you know I, that we struggled with that from time to time. Yeah. Well, so tell us about ATS, uh, America's Thrift Stores. You've got a unique proposition there, and for those in our audience that are not familiar with the company, uh, a little bit about your mission, your values, and uh, what attracted you to join them as CEO. Um. Well, I'll, I'll start there and work work to the other questions. I was, when I left the world of, of online for-profit education, um, I joined a company called Alpine Investors, which is a private equity firm. Um, Alpine recruited me because it was looking to make investments in for-profit education. It already owned two uh, businesses in that realm. And it wanted to hire me to be something that they called a, a, an executive in waiting, and basically a right. CEO, a CEO on the bench, and and you yeah. would go find the business to buy that you would ultimately run. I went through the interview process, and and um, on my final day of interviews, uh, the the founding partner and and one of the managing partners sat down and said, "We have a different." idea for you that we'd like you to consider it instead of being an executive in residence we'd like you to become an operating partner and what that means is you're going to work with four five or six of our portfolio companies and and do all sorts of different things you could serve on a board you could serve as a mentor to a ceo you could step in as an interim ceo you could help them with a strategic problem and I thought, yeah, I'd love to do that. And so that's what I signed on for. I joined Alpine uh, in January of 2012 as a as an operating partner, and I had four or five businesses that I was uh, helping out. One that's of scary, which was yeah. America's was America's Thrift Stores, oh, and um, yeah. I was on the board of America's Thrift Store. I was helping the CEO find a CFO and a COO, and I was also helping them put together their first ever strategic plan. Um, and the s- new CFO that we brought in uh, basically uncovered some questionable accounting practices mm. uh, that had happened with um, new product, not donated product, that the company had purchased in China in 2011-2012 that had never had an obsolescence reserve markdown on it. So it was sitting Mm. on the books at full value even though it hadn't sold from 2011-2012 on. And um, it had been hidden from Alpine in in a way Mm. that was deceitful, resulted in a lawsuit between Alpine and the founder uh, and resulted in the CEO being asked to step down, and wow. I was asked to step in as interim. Um, yeah. In stepping in as interim CEO, my job was going to be to find the permanent CEO. Um, right. But the reality was, is in a couple short months, I discovered significantly more issues that I'm just not going to go into a ton of detail on, but right. issues that were as significant as that accounting practice issue mm. with with legal risk and monetary risk associated with them. And so the board in Alpine asked me if I'd be willing to commit a year to 
fixing it, turning it around. And so in January of 2014, I became the, the permanent CEO, but not completely permanent because I signed up for a year. Uh, and I started yeah. commuting back and forth between California and, and Birmingham. By the middle of that year, we had begun to make progress at cleaning up what needed to be cleaned up. Uh, and yeah. the board asked me if I'd ever think about doing this permanently and become the CEO and not not fill the job. Um, I brought my wife and stepdaughter out here to Birmingham. We spent a week at the Gulf Coast uh, spent a weekend, a long weekend in the Smokies, and, and they visited eight or ten different schools in, in and around Birmingham, and uh, by the time school year started in uh, the late summer of 2014, uh, we were here in Birmingham and had decided to make it our home, and I became the, yeah. the permanent CEO of the company. Wow, wow, fantastic, great. Thank so in terms of our who we, who, who we are, uh, 20... Uh, three soon to be 24 stores um, we basically collect donations on behalf of um, high awareness charities that um, that we've uh, built relationships with during my tenure here <clears throat> in in Alabama it's uh, Make-A-Wish in Middle Tennessee it's Make-A-Wish in um, Georgia it's Children's Miracle Network through the Children's Health Care of um, of uh, uh, Atlanta uh, in eastern Tennessee it's uh, Adult and Teen Challenge in Louisiana it's Adult and Teen Challenge so two causes that we support with our donation network Children's mm. Health and, and uh, Addiction Recovery uh, as I mentioned early on you can understand why addiction recovery is something that I think yeah. is a good thing to support to you. <clears throat> when we yeah. when, when, the, when we collect donations we Basically, it benefits our partners, and we contribute an amount to uh, to them based on the donations we collect. Um, and right. and basically, we're in the business of selling gently used clothing and household items in in our stores. I mean, we're a thrift store. We're a chain of thrift stores. Right. Um, you, when you would walk into our stores, though, you would not necessarily think of of most thrift stores. I mean, our stores are not dark, dingy, smelly. Um, uh, hmm. Our stores are more like a TJ Maxx or a Ross's. Um, and our tagline as a company is where it's a new store every day uh, because variety and selection is, is right. what we're about. Um, and so each of our stores will put out 8,000 to 15,000 new items every single day. Um, wow. And what the result is a very f high frequency shopper base um, and, and a, a very healthy business. We, <clears throat> our employees sometimes wear T-shirts that say "Not your mama's thrift store," because uh, <laughs> we're not. I mean, we're, we're uh, yeah, and we're yeah, in. Very we're we took we it took took me five years to kind of get the business stable, um, and then once we got the business stable, we were able to start opening new stores. We opened opened our first new store in September of 2019. Uh, mm. Later this month, we'll open our seventh new store uh, in the last 24 months. So seven new stores in, in wow. uh, two years. Uh, before that, starting in the first quarter of 2017, our existing business has been incredibly healthy. We've, in retail, you think in terms of comp store sales growth or comparable store right. sales. Um, mm. And our comp store sales have been growing every quarter since the first quarter of 2017. With two exceptions, the first quarter of 2020, uh, when we shut all our stores down due to COVID in, in March of 2020, and the second quarter of 2020, when our stores remained shut down until middle of June. And so other yeah. than those two quarters, our existing business has been growing and healthy, which has yeah. generated the cash flow we need to open new stores. Uh, and as of... Uh, little over a month ago we started our first foray into online thrift and so we're yeah, building uh, an online business also so our our mission well, you know, you've, you've added <clears throat> mm -hmm. go ahead go ahead i was gonna say was, you go on with your mission yeah i was gonna ask about that well our we're the, we're a, this is an incredible business in terms of giving back i mean if you think yeah. about it 
we give back in, in four ways. Um, obviously, with the charities we support, we will give over $3 million to those charities this year. Um, secondly, there is no business that can be as green as we are. I mean, we, we will keep nearly 50 million pounds of things out of landfills this year. I mean, mm. 50 million pounds. If Crazy. you're not yeah. clear how much 50 million is, if you took a bag of donations and started here and laid them side by side all the way up to New York City, you could then come back to uh, Washington and that would be 50 million pounds. Wow. So just wow. for perspective. So we're yeah. green. We, we, there are shoppers that need to shop in our stores. I mean, we, we, yeah, our stores right. are in, in the South. The South is poorer than most places. And we right. have shoppers that live paycheck to paycheck that to clothe their children, to outfit their homes, they need the values that we provide. And then right. by growing, we're adding jobs. I mean, I can you know, look the governor of Alabama in the eye and say, Governor Ivey, I've added 400 jobs to the state of Alabama in the last two years. I mean, and so it's a great business because we give back in, in four different ways, which, which you know, makes it a, a, just a great place to work. It's also a great business to work on because of its complexity. I mean, we have right. our own supply chain network. I mean, we have a fleet of 56 trucks running 170 routes, picking up 55 million pounds of donations. Mm. The back of our stores are all processing plants that when you see them, you'll think they're a manufacturing line. We have right. stores, we have high volume, high transaction, high traffic retail stores. We have a, a waste stream and recycling business because we want to get something for everything we can. Um, and then we have an online business. We have five businesses. So that yeah. complexity makes complexity, it a ton of fun, yeah. I'll see. So. Yeah. Well, you've, you've obviously been growing like crazy. And as we mentioned in your bio, you've almost changed out the entire management team. What, what, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire? Well, it, it, uh, it's three things probably in order. One, I, I like smart people. Um, I think that critical thinking and the ability to problem solve is really important. And I think that mm. starts with, with being smart. Um, two, I like people that have done what it is you're asking them to do. Yeah. The best example of that I can think of is when JCPenney hired the head of Apple retail to fix app to fix JC Penny. The person who headed Apple retail had never closed a store, had never mm -hmm. streamlined SKUs, had never laid off employees, yet that was what he was gonna have to do at JC Penny. Their board should never have hired that person. He'd never done what they needed done. And so right. when I hire someone I always think in terms of what is it I want them to get done over the next 18 to 36 months? And then what is it that the candidate's done that either is that or is analogous to that or can translate into that? Everybody can conceptualize how they would go about doing something. I don't want somebody who can tell me how they do it. I want somebody who can yeah, tell me how they it. did it. I mean, yeah, and then yeah. lastly, fit. And, and you know, we have a great culture here my executive team and our next level leaders uh, operate with a high degree of transparency and, and co-ownership uh, and, and someone has to be able to fit into that kind of brutal honesty. I mean, it's back to the lessons your nanny gave you besides the, the, the two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, one mouth. Point. The other thing you used to say is when you don't know what to say, say the truth it's easier to yeah. remember and and we've <laughs> so true we we've we've grown a culture here that epitomizes that and and yeah. but some people haven't grown up in those kind of cultures they aren't used to that kind of transparency and that kind right. of brutal honesty and it scares them and it and so for someone to succeed inside our organization they have to fit within that because that's how we are and that's what the, that's what the culture is that we've created and that means that means people that means people, you know, doing that to me. I mean, I don't you know that right. I, I don't get sure. away with. I'm the CEO. It's like, no, Ken, you're wrong. You're an idiot. I'm sorry. You know, it's like, but this is this is what the facts say. And as, you know, there's and as, a famous 
famous story at Nordstrom's in John Nordstrom, who was the son of the founder, was asked many, many years ago, um, you know, how does he find such great customer service people that just love the people they look at and they work with and, you know, such a wonderful culture. And he looked at them kind of quizzically and he goes, oh, we don't train and develop them. They were raised that way. We're just good at finding them. Okay, we're just about out of time, but we always have one last question we ask. And, you know, what career and life advice would you give to someone that maybe has their eyes on the corner office, but like you, maybe has tried a different careers, you know, maybe started in CPG, pivoted to learning, and now is in the retail side of it. You know, what, 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 what are the things that you would say to somebody maybe 15, 20 years behind you that might be thinking about wanting to run a big operation like yourself someday? Three three things come to mind. One, look for mentors. You know, look mm. for look for leaders that you know you can learn from, and and ask them if they'd play that role for you. I, I if there's a single thing that's resulted in the success I've had is is literally the litany of great bosses that I've had that I've had the opportunity to learn from, and the yeah. fact that. All of them have been willing to teach and coach and serve as I'm as my mentor. Um, yeah. So look look for that. Um, to practice what Nanny said, you got two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, <laughs> one mouth. Use them proportionally. I mean, right. I, there's a reason why one of the the, the Covey's seven habits is seek first to understand and then to be understood. Is that you can't solve a problem until you understand a problem, whether it's a business problem, whether it's an operational problem, whether it's a people problem. So seek first to understand. Uh, And then third, the customer writes the checks. I mean, and and while we, while we don't do business with a lot of checks anymore, the, the reality is, is somebody is paying us for what we provide them. And that may not be that they're always right, but they're always the customer. Mean That's and right. so you need to like the butcher. Be mind. smart about like it. The butcher. Be smart about <laughs> it. Be smart about it. Ah, great. Well, Ken Sovaski, CEO at Americans Thrift Stores. Thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Well, I really appreciate it, Brant. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.